Welcome to What Matters Now. I'm Amanda Borchel Dan. This week, I'm bringing you excerpts from a behind the headlines video interview with author and journalist Yossi Klein Halevi I conducted exclusively for our Times of Israel community. A senior fellow at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, Yossi is the author of books including Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor and Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. Drawing on themes from both of these books as well as his other work, I asked Yossi to answer five big questions about the war. So for those of you who stick around till the end, you'll also hear about Yossi's wartime playlist. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation as much as I did. And if so, please consider joining our Times of Israel community at timesofisrael.com slash join. So this week, we ask thinker Yossi Klein Halevi, what matters now? You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Community, welcome again to a Behind the Headlines for the community alone. I, Amanda Borshel Dan, Deputy Editor of the Times of Israel, am here today with Hartman Institute Senior Fellow Yossi Klein Halevi. We are going to talk about some big questions that have arisen during this war, and I've charted out five different areas. Let's see if we get through all of them. Yossi, welcome. Great to be with you, Amanda. Such a pleasure always speaking with you. Though, of course, the timing is not so pleasurable. We are here to talk about the war, how we as Israelis are feeling during this war. And this war is extremely, extremely personal to us. And so while we both are journalists, our objectivity is sound in terms of bringing the facts. We are also going to bring some of our feelings and our impressions during this war. So I want to begin with just the basic question of whether this war is or is not existential. Because for me, as an Israeli, I feel like my family, my friends are fighting for our home right now as they fight in Gaza and in the north. How do you feel about this? So I do believe it's existential, not necessarily immediately. But what we learned on October 7th was that it's untenable for us to live on the border with genocidal regimes. 
whether that's Hamas, Hezbollah. And for the last 20 years, we've been living in a kind of delusion that we could maintain more or less normal life. Yeah, there'll be an occasional uh, mini-war in, in Gaza, in southern Lebanon, and we'll have the uh, occasional unpleasant hail of rockets. But on the whole, the country believed that it could more or less maintain normal life. And that ended on October 7th. But something deeper ended on October 7th, too. And that is, I'd say, two elements, uh, essential, I would call them existential elements, of Israel's credibility. The first was our military credibility, the credibility of our military deterrence. In the Middle East, one of the most volatile regions in the world, uh, if you don't have a credible military deterrence, especially the lone Jewish state, then you won't survive here in the long term. And on October 7th, we lost our military deterrence. And the fact that our weakest enemy, which is Hamas, delivered the worst blow in our history is a message that was internalized throughout the region. And so this war is, first of all, an attempt to restore the credibility of our military posture. And when I say that this war is, is, is not immediately existential, if we don't succeed in destroying the Hamas regime, it doesn't mean that Israel is going to be an immediate existential threat. But it means that we're in the beginning of a, of a process of decline. We will be losing our faith. Israelis will be losing their faith in this country's ability to protect ourselves. And that's really what we're fighting for in this war. And at the same time, our enemies will become emboldened. And we saw that process happening in the days after October 7th. Now, I think that to some extent, the way in which the army has fought uh, has, has, has acquitted itself so well in, in the last few months, uh, has gone, has to some extent, has reestablished our deterrence, but not enough. And so the first, the first goal of this war, and, and again, that is existential in the long term, is reestablishing our military credibility. The second element of Israeli credibility that was shattered on October 7th was the covenant that Zionism made with the Jewish people to create a safe refuge for the Jewish people here. And on October 8th, Israel became the most dangerous country in the world for Jews. There's nowhere else in the world where one can imagine 1,200 Jews being rounded up for a great bonfire and mutilated in the grotesque ways that they were except here. There's nowhere else one can imagine 240 Jews being kidnapped by an anti-Semitic regime and held for ransom here. This is a country that sent commandos halfway across Africa in 1976 to rescue 100 Israeli hostages at Entebbe Airport. And yet, on October 7th, we couldn't save 1,200 of our fellow citizens within the sovereign borders of the state. And so what is existentially at stake here 
is not only the credibility of our military deterrence, but of the founding ethos of Israel, the, the, the founding promise of Israel. And if at the end of this war, the regime that did that to the Jewish people is left intact on our borders, then we lost. We are marking International Holocaust Day this weekend, and you grew up in a Holocaust survivor home. And I wonder how much that factors into your your surprise, shock, dismay of the breaking of this covenant that Israel did not protect the Jewish people. Yeah, look, I think that that one doesn't need to come from a Holocaust background to be totally shattered by the inexplicable failure of the army, never mind the government. I had no expectation of this government, and they didn't, they didn't disappoint me. But where was the army? It took a full day for the army to respond. This is a trauma that we're going to carry, I think, for, for years to come. We haven't begun coming to terms with that yet. And in general, I, I've tried to draw a clear line between Holocaust trauma and memory and October 7th and, and the aftermath. And the reason for that, I'd say, are two reasons. First is because even if Hamas resemble the enemies we confronted then, we're not those Jews. We, we have power. And to see ourselves as victims is, is to undermine the historic achievement of the Jewish reclamation of power after the Holocaust. Not only am I not squeamish about our power, I celebrate that as one of the greatest achievements in Jewish history, that we went from the lowest point in our history, which was 1945, to the peak moment in Jewish power. In the state of Israel, that's expressed through hard power, military power, political sovereignty. But in the diaspora as well, it's expressed through soft power, philanthropy, uh, political lobbying, creating alliances with other groups. Uh, we've never been more powerful. And I think that that's really important to, to maintain that context. Yes, October 7th was a momentary lapse into Jewish helplessness. Don't you think, Yossi, as well, though, that that power has led to a bit of a Jewish swagger that maybe made us disbelieve the, the desperate cruelty of Hamas? You know, I, I think that, that as, as cold an eye as we had on, on our enemies, um, this was a, a level of, of cruelty that did succeed in, in shocking us. In terms of the arrogance of power, it's, it's, it's so bizarre frankly, that October 7th happened on the 50th anniversary, virtually to the day of the Yom Kippur War, which we had always thought was the ultimate expression of Israeli hubris. And 
And what was so interesting as well, Amanda, I'm sure, I'm sure you remember this, the media, the Israeli media in the weeks leading up to the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War was filled with self-recrimination and, 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 and asking the, the question incredulously, how is it possible that we lowered our guard? And then on the 50th anniversary. So there's something that we're trying to work out uh, in this country and in, in, a, in our relationship to power that's deeply um, unbalanced. And that's, that's understandable because we went from 1945 to 1948. And, and then we went, you know, look, look at the pattern. May 1967, which I remember, you, you won't. Not born. <laughs> but uh, May 1967, the whole Jewish world was in a state of existential dread. The state of Israel, God forbid, was about to be destroyed. We went from that emotional state to a few weeks later to this ecstasy, the greatest military victory in Jewish history. And then we go from 1967, the euphoria of 1967, to the depression and shattering of Yom Kippur. Then we go from the Yom Kippur War to the Entebbe rescue three years later. So we, are, we have a kind of a manic depressive relationship with power. And, and, and how could it not be so? Even, even if this pattern hadn't played itself out over the last 75 years, just coming from 2,000 years of powerlessness, culminating in the 40s, and then, and then reclaiming sovereignty a few years later. So we, we are a, a, an understandably uh, unbalanced people. And what October 7th has done to our relationship to power is something that, that we haven't begun to unpack. When you're speaking, I'm just thinking about the archetypical symbols of Jewish power, and among them are, of course, King David and King Saul. And you're talking about a manic, depressive relationship to power. Oh, that's great. And it's that's great. <laughs> several thousand years old. <laughs> Let's turn to the second big question that I have been considering, and I think every other Jew who came from North America to make Aliyah here in Israel. And that is, of course, looking at the campuses in North America and seeing these young Jews, who could be my children, your children as well, who are railing. My grandchildren. Maybe your grandchildren. <laughs> who are railing against the Jewish state, who are saying, because we are so powerful, it is basically our fault that October the 7th happened. Yeah. Now, you and I both had a stormy young adulthood, shall we say, you a little more than me, but I had green hair, I had purple hair, I had a checkerboard hair, and then I had no Tell hair. Me more. <laughs> checkerboard was a bad move, and then I had hair like yours. But, but you didn't wear a kafia. I did not wear a kafia, but... You also were swept up into ideology that you don't subscribe to today. And so I wonder, Yosef, from your experience, do you think that these uh, young Jews will one day be supporters of Israel? Yeah, I think we have to keep the door half open. And at the same time that we make clear that if you cross the line into anti-Zionism, you and, and you do so in a public way. I'm not talking about what, what one believes or not. But you take a public stand, you side with the enemies of Israel. At this moment, 
at this moment when the whole Jewish people is feeling acutely vulnerable, uh, you have you have stepped out of the the widest possible parameter of uh, of the big the big tent. And if anything, October seventh has made that very clear. Now, I do draw a distinction between individuals who are being swept up in uh, in the mood and organized expressions of Jewish anti-Zionism, which must be quarantined outside the, the mainstream Jewish community. And I think that process is happening all over the diaspora. Uh, I would also include those who are taking a prominent position of leadership in invalidating the assault against Israel and the Jewish people. But what you know when what what you what you mention I think is 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 right and especially uh, those of us who um, who know the passions of youth uh, need to to know that um, we're all works in progress and it's particularly painful now because we're so vulnerable and because of the the deeply destructive role that Jewish anti-Zionists are, are playing as validators of, uh, of anti-Zionism. But the door does need to remain open. And, um, and I do believe that we're going to see a, um, gradually, I think there will be, there will be a shift. Uh, I have a friend of mine who spent years, a Jewish woman who spent years in, um, in Trotskyite anti-Zionist circles. Uh, her first activity was demonstrating against Natan Sharansky. And, and today she is uh, strongly defending Israel. So I, um, I think that uh, the, 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 the promise of tshuva, of, of, of repentance, and tshuva is, is actually a much more beautiful word, much more beautiful concept than just repentance. It means return. And so you return to who you really are. And um, But until then, I think we need to treat Jewish anti-Zionism the way Jews for Jesus were treated uh, by the American Jewish community in my generation. And if anything, I, I think that uh, Jewish anti-Zionism is a, is a much greater threat than Jews for Jesus was. Jews for Jesus was a threat to individual Jews. Uh, Jewish anti-Zionism is a threat to the, to the credibility of the Jewish story. And without our story, there's no Jewish people. So they, I see Jewish anti-Zionism as, a, as an existential threat. You, you talked about the tent, and of course, one might think that a group called, uh, if not now, would be outside the tent because they are very strongly anti-Israel at this point, or Jewish Voice for Peace, which is usually not even Jewish, the voices that are asking for peace. As but, the joke goes, they're not Jews and they're not for peace. Right, <laughs> okay. Linda Sarsour is, is basically the leader of Jewish Voice for Peace. Exactly, but where do you put something like, Americans for Peace now, who, I don't know, they dance between the raindrops a little bit, or maybe they've stopped dancing and they're getting wet already. I don't know how you see it. 
You know, I, um, I have a new, a new dividing line, um, which is that any Jewish group that was part of the great demonstration in Washington about a month or so ago, uh, left, center, right, is part of the tent. And um, Americans for Peace Now, J Street, Trua, they were all there. Now, I have deep disagreements with those groups, but they're part, they're, they're disagreements within the family. I don't have a family disagreement with Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, or for that matter, if not now, which once defined itself vaguely as we're not taking a stand on Zionism, but now it's very clear what their position is. So I don't have a family dispute with those groups. For all practical purposes, you've, you've abandoned the family. But uh, I have deep disagreements with Jewish groups on the right and Jewish groups on the left, but those really are disagreements within the family, and we need to internalize that. And I, I love what happened in Washington because it was a defining moment for the diaspora. Who's there and who isn't there? And if you felt the need to gather with fellow Jews at that moment, you're, you're, you're part of the family. And then we'll disagree about everything. Exactly. Know. Your tent is very loud, I take it. Oh, very it's, noisy. It's, and, and, and the flaps are banging all the time, you know. But they're, they're, they have to hold. Sure. So the third uh, realm I'd like to discuss is global anti-Semitism. And as you said, that some of these anti-Zionist Jewish groups are being used as, as validation mm -hmm. for many of these global anti-Semites. And we look what hap what's happening in Europe. We look and see what's happening on campuses, of course, or throughout the U.S. and North America in general. And I don't know, for me as an Israeli, I feel so much safer living here even though we're under war, than, living, than Jews living there, perhaps. I don't know. It's my that's, perception. Uh, that's the post-October 7th joke, you know, is that uh, if you had asked me on October 8th, what is the most dangerous country in the world? And I, I said it to you before. But the truth is that I feel psychologically safer here. I don't feel physically safer. <laughs> you know, let's let's... Let's be real about this. But psychological safety may actually be more important in the end. And the fact that our kids are, are psychologically at home, this is really the great victory of Zionism, is that it created generations of, uh, of Israelis who didn't need Zionism. But what I do see happening post-October 7th is a rediscovery of Zionism and very much of Jewish identity. That's very clear. You see it in the music that's come out since the war. You, you, you see it in the way the kids are speaking now about what this place means to them. And uh, so it's, it's a defining moment. And um, I, I, I read a report in the Times of Israel, where, which is where I get most of my news, that uh, French Jews have been moving here since October 7th. And uh, at first I thought, oh, come on, <laughs> you know. 
But uh, yes, yes, I, I get it because of that sense of you don't want to feel that you're, 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 the integrity of your soul is under assault. You don't want to have to de- defend your identity. Here, we're defending our lives. And, uh, but there's still something different. You come from New York. Uh, I definitely do not. And when you lived in New York, would you have felt comfortable walking around with a kippah on your head? I grew up with a kippah on my head. And then gradually, as in, in high school and afterwards, the kippah began finding its place in my pocket, uh, partly because I really wanted to experience the big world and uh, without... Um, um, Without boundaries, I wanted to test myself in the big world. But growing up, I experienced a fair amount of anti-Semitism and was very self-conscious wearing a kippah. And I noticed it began to change. It changed after I made Aliyah. I, I made Aliyah in 1982. And on visits back, I would see that it felt okay to wear a kippah. And I started wearing a kippah again here when I made Aliyah. And it was really part of the of a of an extraordinary process that happened in the United States, I think in Canada too, where Jews began to feel unconditionally accepted. When I was growing up, Jews felt accepted to some extent in America, but there was there there was always this sense of conditionality. And the great victory of North American Jews was in the 80s, 90s, was this feeling of, we finally made it. We can be as as Jewish uh, as we want to be. And, And it was this extraordinary feeling of victory. And, and, It was the universities where this happened first. And I experienced it in in the 1970s. I went to a university that had a quota on Jews probably until 1970. And my graduating class, I went to journalism school, was 40% Jewish. Our professors, none of them, almost none of them were Jews. And, And so I saw the change happening already in, in my generation. And, and that sense of Jews feeling completely at home, it began in the universities. And I think that part of the trauma that Jews are experiencing today in North America is that the sense of unconditional acceptance is being rescinded in the universities. And that's a trauma that I... I can't emotionally, I I don't know what to do with. Because that for me, I became an American when I went to university. You know, I grew up in in a survivor Orthodox neighborhood in Brooklyn. It was only um, tangentially related. Geographically, it was part of of the U.S. Uh, It wasn't culturally, psychologically part of America at all. And... um, and I became an American in, in, in university. And, um, and so this is really a generational shock, a historical setback for, 
North American Jews. I think what's so shocking to me is that a lot of this is happening in New York or on the coast. Oh, yeah. Because I went to university in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana. uh, What did you study? I studied actually music and then Jewish studies. And the first day when I moved into the dorms, my roommate said to me, you're a Jew? I've never met a Jew before. And it was like that for several... Was it said in a... In an antagonistic way or just no, it was curious? Puzzled, I would say, puzzled. more than anything. And it was like puzzled that. Is good these puzzled days. is okay. <laughs> right. But that was Indiana. That was 1993. And now I'm seeing what's happening on campuses in our day and age. And it just feels like the utter reversal of what you just described that yeah. you experienced. Yeah. Although it's, it's the irony is it's probably better in. Um, maybe in Indiana and other places outside the coasts. Right. You know, that's, uh, and it would be interesting to unpack the reasons for that. Do you appreciate Times of Israel podcasts and our truly independent journalism reported directly from wartime Israel? Has the Times of Israel become important for your understanding of Israel and the Jewish world during this time of rising global anti-Semitism? If so, please join others like you who support our work by joining the Times of Israel community. For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become partners of ours in ensuring media coverage of Israel that's professional, factual, and fair. For more information and to join, just go to timesofisrael.com join. Let's move more domestically. And there are some new surveys that came out this week, including uh, asking the Israeli public whether they support the idea of a pause in the fighting for the release of the hostages. And overwhelmingly, there was a lack of support of a pause in the fighting for the hostages. And I think for many people who live outside of Israel, it just seems so shocking and counterintuitive because we we all want the hostages back. We cry for the hostages every single day. But at the same time, there's a huge support and and going back to what we were discussing in the beginning, an existential drive mm-hmm. to topple Hamas. Right. How, do you, how do you understand this, this feeling of a lack of support for a pause? Well, I think that just to take a step back for a moment to understand what, what the issues are that we're grappling with, we're facing an impossible choice between two essential elements of the Israeli ethos. One is you don't leave anyone behind. And that's, that's a, a commitment that defined the Jewish people through 2,000 years of exile. Pidyon Shvuyim, the redemption of the prisoner. Jewish communities would go to great lengths in, in the exile to, to redeem any Jew who, who fell captive. And that ethos was transferred uh, to Israeli identity and its, its, its core in who we are. 
You don't leave anyone on the battlefield. You, you don't leave bodies behind, let alone prisoners. And, and so that's one, and that defines us as a, as a nation. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful aspects of Israeliness. We, we've always taken for granted that we can count on our fellow Israelis. <laughs> but the other essential element of the Israeli ethos is what we were talking about before, self-defense. You don't allow a genocidal regime to remain in power after it committed a kind of a microcosmic genocidal event. And how do you choose between those two commitments? Uh, I had a, had a conversation with two friends here just recently. One said, um, if we let the hostages die when we could save them, then this isn't the same Israel that I knew. And I don't feel that same sense of solidarity with Israelis. And I don't know if this country is worth fighting for anymore. Then I had a conversation with another friend who said that if we give in to Hamas blackmail over the hostages and don't bring the regime down and prove that we no longer have what it takes to survive in the Middle East, I'm going to tell my children, leave. Take my grandchildren out of here because this country is not going to be viable in the long term. Now, I... And I had those two conversations in the space of a few days. And each of those voices spoke to me. And so I think that, that I would look at that poll not in, in, in through the, the cold prism of numbers, but there's the, each person who responded, I think, had a process to go through. What do I do? What, where, where do I come down on? Now, for me, I come down on that issue in different times. You know, in, in, until recently, I felt we have to bring Hamas down. Now, I'm beginning to think that we need to make a deal to bring the hostages back. Because if we don't, it will have strategic impact on our ability to have faith in this country. Really, the question is, which choice will undermine the faith of, of Israelis in this country more deeply? That's an impossible choice. So I would also guess that that, um, that, that poll, which is the first, by the way, that I've seen, which is interesting, three, three plus months into the war, and this is the first time that the pollsters dared even ask that question because it's so sensitive. And I, I suspect that um, had that question been asked over the last few months, we would have seen real variables in those numbers. And that's the mood right now. It'd be interesting to know why that is right now. But um, I, I don't know if that's going to, to last. We have a people's army. You served in the people's army. I, I did not, but my children certainly are, and my husband and everyone else in the family. And I wonder how many people can see the hostages as part of that people's army, even though they are perhaps 80 years old or a yeah. year. Yeah, it's, um, look, there is 
the quiet Israeli voice, which maybe is becoming a little louder now, and it's amplified in that poll, which says we've already lost so many people. And if we don't go all the way in this war, we're going to lose a lot more in the long term. How does the Gilad Shalit deal look in retrospect? You know, when it happened, when we traded a thousand terrorists for one Gilad Shalit, we were we were so proud. I remember writing about, I, I was just speaking of hubris. I was so, you know, look, look how wonderful we are. What a wonderful country. We're so moral. We're so much more moral than, than, than our enemies, which is true, but we're not necessarily smarter than them. And what, how many, how many Israelis did we lose because of the Gilad Shalit deal? So this is something that I think people abroad need to understand. This is part of the calculation. The Gilad Shalit deal weighs very heavily on the Israeli conscience post-October 7th. Uh, Yechia Sinwar was released in, in the Shalit deal. Hundreds of terrorists who participated either in the planning or the execution of October 7th were released in that deal. So in retrospect, it looks different. And I think that's part of what is driving that determination to this time we don't give in to blackmail. So the obvious question, I think, if we're going into retrospect is how does the disengagement 2005 in retrospect look to you? I don't know what your stance was during that Very period supportive. of disengagement. Yeah. And how do you see it today? I still support it. Still support it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because October 7th, in some ways, confirmed Ariel Sharon's intuition that we can't absorb Gaza. We can't live with Gaza as part of our state. And look, we made tremendous mistakes when we withdrew. One of the major mistakes we made was that we didn't immediately respond with overwhelming force when the first rockets came over the border. That should have happened immediately. And Ariel Sharon, of all people, uh, who one would have expected to understand that, um, was asleep uh, on guard duty. So, and that emboldened, uh, at that time, it wasn't even Hamas. It was the Palestinian Authority. And, and it created a pattern of tolerance on our part for what should have been intolerable. It shouldn't have mattered. A rocket falling in an empty field is an act of war. And we didn't treat it that way. And we paid the consequences. So I believe that, that the withdrawal was essential, but the after effects, the way in which it played out, um, were, uh, were not what, uh, what I expected. So if a rocket attack from Gaza should have been met with strong reprisal, what do you see going on in the North right now? And how should, or how do you suppose Israel will respond? Look, I, I, one of the reasons why I'm leaning toward a hostage deal is it's obvious that the war in Gaza is not winding down, but, but, but uh, slowing down. And large numbers of soldiers 
have been evacuated from Gaza. Many of the reservists have been demobilized. Uh, others have been transferred to the northern border. What I personally would like to see is winding down the war in Gaza, hostage deal, and attacking Hezbollah full force. Because there is no way that we can live with Hezbollah on the border. Hezbollah is a far greater threat than Hamas. We have tens of thousands of Israelis who are internal refugees from both the South and the North, and many of them will not go back to live on the border if Hezbollah is still there. And sooner or later, we're going, there's no choice. We're going to have to confront Hezbollah. And I think, I think we all know it. And we might as well do it now while the army is mobilized. And um, so that's, but that, but that needs to be part of a strategy. And this government is incapable of a strategy. This government acts tactically, not strategically. And, uh, and that's a whole other question. Can we really go to a regional war? And if we're, if we're at war with Hezbollah, it's a regional war. Can we go to a regional war with the most incompetent and, and least trustworthy government in our history? That terrifies me. But in terms of what I think needs to happen militarily, that's the playbook that I personally would feel we need to, to follow. It feels like uh, a dream to speak about the day after, but uh, if you don't dream it, it won't happen, right? To paraphrase. And so many abroad, mostly, are talking about the need for a Palestinian state, in fact, talking about recognizing a Palestinian state even before uh, the Palestinian state is actually viable. And I wonder, right now we're seeing Gaza, we're seeing the West Bank, and for many, many, many years, it hasn't felt like they could combine into one state. But even the ethos coming out of yeah. the Hamas-run Gaza seems different in a way than what's happening in the West Bank. So I wonder if there's actually a possibility, do you think, of a two-state or three-state or one-state yeah. solution? Yeah, my starting point is that a two-state solution is terrible. It's a disaster. But the only thing a little bit worse is one state. And so that leaves me without any good alternatives, but it leaves me still with the need to prevent a one state, not a one state solution, a one state dissolution, uh, almost at all costs. You know, Amanda, I think that there are two takeaways from October 7th regarding a Palestinian state and their opposite takeaways. The first is that it's inconceivable after October 7th that we would risk duplicating Hamas, the, 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 the Gaza border, to our most sensitive border, which is the West Bank. The West Bank borders greater Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and the thought of living next door to a Hamas-run Palestinian state, which I would guess uh, is more likely than not to happen if there's a West Bank Palestinian state. Hamas will take it over just as it took over Gaza. And that's, that's inconceivable. But there's a second 
There's a second takeaway of October 7th, which we touched on before, which is that between the river and the sea, these two peoples cannot share the same state. And that means that we need to think, if not about peace, and I don't know any Israelis, left, right, or center today, who really are speaking about peace after October 7th, but peace isn't necessarily the the immediate goal. Peace is the long-term. The more short-term goal is to begin a process of separating these two peoples who have a pathologically dysfunctional relationship. And there's another factor here, which is the changing nature of the region. And something extraordinary has happened in the last few years, and it's still happening. And that is that for all practical purposes, the 70-plus-year the Sunni war against Israel is winding down. We have been in a regional war where it's the Sunni Arab world against Israel. And most of the Sunni world is no longer in a state of active war. And some parts of the Sunni world are remain interested in normalization with Israel, including Saudi Arabia. And let's never take that for granted for a moment. What an extraordinary moment we're living in where Saudi Arabia, the custodian of Islam, our most implacable enemy when I was growing up, Saudi Arabia, led the Arab oil boycott after the Yom Kippur War, which which crippled Israel diplomatically, economically. And today, the very oil-producing countries that were our worst enemies are are in a relationship of normalization or potential normalization. So we also need to think about, when we think about a Palestinian state, it needs to be in a regional context. There will be no bilateral peace agreement between, between Israel and the Palestinians. That's not going to happen. But to bring in our Arab allies, and even using that term, the fact that we have Arab allies, I can't get used to that term because for most of my life, I grew up with the reality that the Arab world wants to destroy us. It's no longer true. Now, we, we're still in a regional existential war, and that's the Shiite regional war against Israel, along with Hamas, which is the one uh, Sunni uh, ally. Of, of the Shiites. So this is, this is an historic shift. And we need to think of the Palestinian tragedy, the Palestinian challenge in the context of, uh, of this regional transformation, the transformation of the Sunni world. And we are now, we are potentially Jewish Sunnis. <laughs> and that's where... And, and it's in that framework that I think we need to, to imagine. I don't even want to call it a two-state solution, any solution. Let's call it a arrangement. Let's call it 
beginning a process that will move us gradually away from a de facto one state, move us away from ruling over another people, which is a disaster for us. There's so many, uh, especially abroad. I, I saw a very interesting clip the other day from protesters in London who were asked, why are you protesting against the Jewish state, Israel? And one of them said, and it was quite interesting, he said, because if they discriminate against the Palestinians, if they just gave them all citizenship and treated a person as a person as a person, there would be no conflict. And I think a lot of Westerners have this mm-hmm. uh, conception that it is Israel who is is, uh, of course, creating this disaster, one, but Israel, who is the apartheid state, two, of course, and Israel, who is removing from the Palestinians their rights as Israelis. So what would you answer to somebody who said, just give them citizenship and all of your problems will be solved? You know, post-October 7th, I, I am beyond perplexed at the is it a is it a mic is it a a a short attention span <laughs> and did october 7th last for all of you know two days i what do they think happened here on october 7th what did that tell us about the nature of this conflict if we were to create one state between the river and the sea it would be far worse than yugoslavia It would end the way Lebanon, Syria, Iraq ended, Libya. We would become one more failed Middle Eastern state, but much worse, much more uh, dysfunctional. And and, and the the level of uh, of fratricide that that you would see here would be just extraordinary. So we need to think of solutions in the real world. So that's 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 one one point. But on a on a deeper level, there needs to be one corner of this planet where the Jewish people is a majority, where the public space is determined by Jewish culture, Jewish civilization, and that's non-negotiable. And Up until May 14th, 1948, it was legitimate to debate whether the Jews should return after 2,000 years to this land. It was a pretty crazy idea. But here we are. We did it. And that debate is itself illegitimate. And to, um, to think about ways of how do you dismantle the Jewish state and Never mind the what October 7th revealed about what that would mean for the lives of 7 million Jews here. But on a really on a deeper level, if we're if we're if we're serious about the rights of peoples to self-determination, this is the way that the Jewish people can thrive in uh, in a globalizing culture. To be minority, to be a minority everywhere, uh, in in the twenty first century, um, means to be struggling against cultural extinction. And Israel is this brilliant solution to to 
the fate of a minority in a globalizing world. We didn't conceive of Zionism 150 years ago in, in, in those terms because it was, it was a very different world. But actually, Zionism turned out to be, uh, I think, a, a, an intuitively precocious in, and, in, in creating a solution for, uh, for a beleaguered minority. Yossi, um, I have finished all of our five big questions that I had laid out. And just before we end, I'd like to talk to you very slightly about this culture, this Jewish culture that you uh, alluded to just now in Israel. And every war has its own playlist. And you're seeing right now a playlist. And this is a much deeper conversation. And it's a longer conversation. But if you could just chart out some of the trends that you're seeing in the playlist right now interesting. I got an email from a friend the other day asking uh, me to send her a list of uh, my favorite songs of this period. I started making the list and it got longer and longer. There's so much rich music that's coming out. I mean, Israeli music is just world-class. It's, it's, it's I think, the most um, evocative expression of uh, Israeli culture. And, and there are other tremendous Israeli cultural forms. But uh, I, think, I think music and maybe literature are really our, our culminating um, expressions. The, um, what's happened in this war, very different from previous wars, all wars, all major Israeli wars produce beautiful music, soulful music. This this war has as well, but different. It's different. First of all, there is a whole genre of grief. And the grief is for fallen soldiers, but more so for fallen civilians. That makes this war qualitatively different. And there's this outpouring of, of there's a whole subgenre of um, music related to the Nova Festival. And, and it's very personal. There are songs about my friend. There are songs about, about the heroes who came in and tried to save people and were themselves killed. Uh, and, and, and there's no letting up. It's, it's just continuing. There's a whole subgenre of um, rage and the rage is very interesting musically because we've never had rap music that's related to the war, to, to a war. Israeli music always, in, during time of war, always fell into a time-tested pattern of, of ballads and, and longing for peace and, and uh, wistful music. And determination, you know, there is that, that strong determination throughout Israeli war music. But I have never heard rage before. Not like this. And, of course, the, the most famous song, uh, the most famous rap song is uh, Harbu Darbu, uh, which I have to tell you, I love that song. You know, it shows what a whole generation of, of young Israelis uh, are going through. And, and how they've responded. And, um, but it is by no means the only, the only uh, example of uh, this, 
rage and the rap. And it's interesting, you know, that, that so much of this is being expressed through trans and rap, because that, of course, was the Nova Festival. And so that's, uh, I get very emotional when I, when Same. I. That's when why I, I left really, it to the last. <laughs> really, nothing, nothing hits me as, as strongly as, uh, as this music. And then there's, um, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, there's a whole genre of religious music where um, there's such a strong element of faith that's coming out. <laughs> Yossi, I so. began by saying this is such a personal uh, war for us. I mean, we both went through the second intifada, you the first intifada, but there's something innately different this time. And every soldier list, I'm sure you know people who know people, who, and it's just ripples of grief that we're dealing with since October 7th. It really is. It really is. So, thank you for uh, tearing me apart. <laughs> Not my intention. <laughs> but it was wonderful to be with you, Amanda. Great conversation. So, thank you. Again. Community. Thank you for joining me today, and thank you for all of your support, as usual. Thank you for supporting us during this war, and thank you for your support prior to the war. We will continue to have these conversations behind the headlines for our community only. Thank you again. Good night. International Holocaust Day is observed this week, and as noted in my conversation with Yossi Klein-Halevi, global anti-Semitism is sharply rising all the time. A few recent figures. Anti-Semitic acts in France nearly quadrupled in 2023 compared with the previous year. Worryingly, nearly 13% of anti-Semitic attacks last year took place in schools, most of them in junior high schools. In Britain, around one-third of the public believes Israel treats the Palestinians like the Nazis treated the Jews, according to about half of the 18 to 24-year-olds surveyed. As a mother of three children in that age group, I know that they are works in progress and, you know, frankly, aren't we all? So my question is, how can we, the adults in the room, help the thinking of these 18 to 24-year-olds mature? This episode was recorded at the Israel Democracy Institute and produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.